pray. Father, we're grateful for the, I'm for one, I'm grateful for the cooler weather. Um, we thank you, Lord, for this uh, kind of a neat time of the year, um, Thanksgiving in the rearview mirror and Christmas uh, coming up on us pretty quick here. So this is just a time of Thanksgiving for us, rejoicing. We look to you as the bestower of all of our blessings. We thank you very much for that, not the least of which is the birth of your son, Jesus, into our world 2,000 years ago, which we're going to have the opportunity to celebrate uh, next month. We're also grateful for the ministry of the Spirit, uh, who has a great role of taking the things of God and making them uh, meaningful uh, to our lives. We're thankful for that ministry of illumination. And we do understand, Father, that even in our natural state, we do things of a sinful variety. We have sinful motives and thoughts and sometimes actions. And so to prepare uh, us for your ministry of illumination, we're going to just take a couple of moments of silence to do personal business with you so that we can receive uh, from your word today. We're thankful, Lord, that our position before you is secure, but fellowship can be damaged. And we're thankful that in the comprehensiveness of your provision for us, you've even made provision for the restoration of broken fellowship via 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. I do pray, Lord, that you'll be with us this morning as, as we study, not just uh, here in Sunday school and in the main service that follows, but also in all of the different classes with all of the different teachers that are meeting in this building. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen. Well, good morning, everybody. Happy end of November, almost December. Grateful for the cooler weather. Um it doesn't, in Houston, it doesn't even feel like fall until December, I've noticed, but let's uh, open our Bibles this morning to Second Thessalonians, um, chapter 2 and verse 3. Um, as you know, we've been teaching verse by verse through the Thessalonian books here in Sunday school. And we just so happened to come upon this passage in our verse-by-verse study. Uh, Paul writes there, Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy, uh, Greek noun translated apostasy is apostasia, comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of <clears throat> destruction. Uh, Paul the Apostle had been, as you know, after having planted the church in Thessalonica on his second missionary journey, um, that's the circle there up north, was forced out of that area by unbelieving Jews. He went down south to Corinth, and it's from Corinth not long after he planted that church, that he wrote two letters to the Thessalonians, sort of in a back-to-back fashion, um, primarily answering questions that they had about the subject of eschatology, which is the study of the end. And the problem arose there in verse 2 with 2 Thessalonians where it says that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed either by spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord, and keep that expression, the day of the Lord, 
in mind here because that has been, I'm of the persuasion, mistranslated by the King James Version as the day of Christ. If you translate that as the day of Christ rather than the day of the Lord, as I'll show you, it changes the whole meaning. More on that later. To the effect that the day of the Lord, and we put in brackets there the tribulation period, has come. So when Paul was with them and in the first letter, he said that they were in the church age. A rapture was coming. And then subsequent to the rapture would be the day of the Lord or the tribulation period. And now all of a sudden this forged letter shows up purporting to come from Paul when it, when it didn't. Telling the Thessalonians, no, just fooling, um, you're not going to miss the tribulation period, you're in it right now. Which is quite a change in theology, right? And they were, as Second Thessalonians 2, 2 says, shaken. That's the word in Greek that's used of an earthquake elsewhere. Uh, they were shaken to the core of their beings because, number one, it was this change in theology. And number two, if Paul just reversed course and canceled what he said earlier, then how do you trust any other word that comes out of Paul's mouth? So this, once you understand this background, you understand why he wants to write to this church of brand new Christians that he's just planted maybe a year, six months to a year earlier. So what he says is you're not yet in the day of the Lord, the tribulation period, because if you were in the day of the Lord, you would see five things. And he gives a laundry list there and you haven't seen any of them yet. So reject the false letter and go back to what I told you in the first letter, that you will miss the day of the Lord because you'll be raptured to heaven beforehand. So we just started making our way through this list of five things, and we've been spending a lot of time there on the first one. He says, first comes the apostasy. And the reason we've been spending a lot of time on it, I think this is lesson eight on it, is because it's very uh, vigorously debated today what that means. And there are basically two principal views on it. The first is it's referring to a departure from the Word, some kind of spiritual departure. And I talked you through that and some of the problems associated with that view. There is a minority view, which I believe is correct, I've been trying to defend it, that it is not talking about a departure from the Word, it's talking about a departure from the world. In which case, the apostasia becomes a synonym for the rapture. And if that view is correct, the only thing Paul is saying here is, you're not in the day of the Lord, because if you're in the day of the Lord, you wouldn't be here, is basically what he's saying. You would have departed by now. And the reason this has become such a big deal is the descriptor there first. The departure comes first. That's the Greek word proton. And the reason this is so, such a big deal is if the departure comes first, then the debate over the rapture is over. Because people have been screaming and yelling at each other about the timing of the rapture for the last 150 years. Um, is it pre-trib? That's the view we represent. Is it mid-trib, middle of the tribulation? Is the rapture at the end of the tribulation? Is the rapture three-quarters uh, into the tribulation? Well, there's really not much to discuss anymore if the departure comes first. If the departure comes before everything else on that list, then it's sort of game, set, match for pre-tribulationalism. So all of the anti-pre-trib people out there, um, they have like a vested interest in debunking this view that I'm trying to defend. I try to defend it in my little book, The Falling Away, which we have copies for you 
at the box at the table in the back if you have not received one yet. And basically what that little book does is it gives you ten reasons. It's not written for scholars. It's just written for people that want to know what this whole thing is about here. It gives you ten reasons why the physical departure view is correct. And those, and we've walked through all of those. Those are, number one, there have always been doctrinal departures. So how could another one be some kind of definitive sign of the end? Number two, Second Thessalonians was an early letter where Paul is not dealing with the last day's apostasy of the church. He deals with that in his latter ministry. Number three, there's a definite article in front of the word apostasia. He's not saying just a departure, he's saying the departure. And so he seems to be referring to something he'd already taught them about, and the rapture fits that understanding just fine. I've showed you that the noun apostasia in classical Greek and patristic Greek can refer to a physical departure. The verb form coming from the same root, Ephistomy means physical departure in 80% of its uses in the New Testament. So the word can go either direction. And I think the extended context, number six, looking at the Thessalonian letters together, and then the immediate context, looking at this paragraph, fits very nicely with a rapture understanding. And then people say, number eight, well, why doesn't Paul say harpazo? That would have fixed the whole problem. Why doesn't he use the same word that he used in the first letter to describe the rapture? And the answer to that is Paul is reviewing material here. He says, don't don't you remember when I was with you, I told you these things. And when you review, um, essentially what you're doing is you're summing up material that you've already explained in different words. And then number nine, the early Bible, I talked you through this one, the early Bible translations um, put a word in there, departure. The, so, so they all seem to, until you get to Reams and the King James Bible, seem to be open to some kind of physical departure understanding. And then number 10, um, contrary to what people will tell you, only the crazies, you know, there's no evidence for this. Um, I talked you through a number of key scholars and pastors, some deceased, some alive still and with us, um, who held to a physical departure understanding. So it's not some wild, wild-eyed, crazy view that no one believes. It's a, it's a minority view, but it is held by a number of very, very good people. So having said all that, what I'd like to start here is sort of talking you through the objections to the view. There are five, to my mind, there's five objections that people recycle over and over again. Um, and as you start to study this, you'll hear these objections. And I actually think there's a good answer to each of these objections. So there's five of them. Um, the first objection is the Greek word apostasia never means physical departure in the coin, in what's called the koine period. So when you study Greek, remember it was Alexander the Great that brought Greek to the known world. Um, that was actually a fulfillment. The, the empire of Alexander the Great was a fulfillment of what Daniel said would come. 300 years in advance, Daniel 8, Daniel 11. And one of the things Alexander the Great wanted to do, he was a, a globalist, a one-worlder. He wanted to create this kind of monolithic Greek culture. And that was actually the hand of God, we believe, because Greek, as we've talked about, is one of the fullest dialects. So one of the fullest dialects was now on the books to record the revelation of God's Son when Jesus would show up in what we call the first century. 
So the Greek language, you can sort of divide it into three parts. There's the classical period, early Greek, and then there's uh, what's called Koine Greek. Um, that's the Greek that the New Testament was written in. And then after that, there's a patristic era of the church fathers, and that's a latter uh, form of Greek. And so what people say is, well, give me an example where apostasia means physical departure from the Koine period. So they want to shut their minds to evidence from the classical period and the patristic period, and they want you just to focus on the Koine period. And they, they want to say, well, where is an example where apostasia means physical departure in the Koine period? Um, the answer to that is it was used in the classical period as a departure, and it was used in the uh, patristic period for physical departure. So I've never seen a word anywhere that has a meaning, classical period, loses its meaning, koine period, and regains that same meaning, patristic period. I mean, maybe there's some example where that happens. I'm not seeing it. I'm not seeing words used one way, completely lose their meaning, and then regain that same meaning. So this is why I quoted H. Wayne House, who wrote an article on this. He says, the noun form allows for apostasia as a simple departure in the classical period, proved by examples from Liddell and Scott. Now, here's a Greek lexicon from the classical period, and you'll notice that the last three entries uh, refer to some sort of physical removal. Departure, disappearance, or distance. Uh, H. Wayne House goes on and he says, if one says that this is not important because the meaning is only classical or ancient and thus lost its meaning by the time of the New Testament, the Koine period in other words, then I may turn to the same root meaning of apostasia in the patristic period immediately following the New Testament, as is indicated in definitions for the noun in Lamp's patristic Greek lexicon. So you go to the patristic period, and here's some entries for the word in the patristic period. The last three favor a physical departure understanding. It can refer to a a divorce where two people physically separate, it can refer to a departure, and it can refer to standing aloof. Wayne House goes on and says, although the noun used in the sense of spatial departure is not the normal meaning, during New Testament times, the word is found with this meaning in time periods before and after the New Testament era. And it is likely to have been understood this way at least sometimes. So Wayne House is saying you have examples of it in the classical period and the patristic period that bracket the Koine period. So it's not surprising that it would be used um, that way in, in, in the Koine period is really his point. So when people make this argument, they're not really giving you this whole picture that I'm trying to give you. And they kind of, um, you know, they kind of come across, if I can be honest with you, as as bullies. Uh, Well, show me the word in the Koine period, as if as if they have discovered every piece of archaeological remains from the Koine period. I mean, we understand, I hope, that what we know from the Koine period or any period is just a millimeter or a fraction of what is out there uh, that was either destroyed or maybe yet to be discovered. So they're kind of assuming that they have some kind of exhaustive knowledge of the Koine period based on the few scraps that we have. And I'm saying, well, even if we don't discover something from the Koine period, maybe we will at some point. It's like putting your right foot into the Atlantic Ocean 
and therefore from that experience concluding that you know everything about the Atlantic Ocean because your right foot is is in the water. So that makes you an authority on the Atlantic Ocean, right? When your right foot is in the water, that's that's sort of what people are doing when they say, well, show me an example from the Koine period. They're assuming some kind of exhaustive knowledge of the Koine period, uh, which they don't have. But that's really the first uh, sort of objection. The second objection of five, and a lot of my friends that are pre-trib, they happen to agree with me or I agree with them on the timing of the rapture. They don't want to go for this view here. And I think one of the reasons they don't want to go for this view here is they think it somehow subtracts from the teaching of the doctrinal departure of the church in the last days. So the second objection is, if we go for this physical departure view, it would be a subtraction from the last days being characterized by continual apostasy. And it's kind of a mentality that says, uh, don't take that verse away from me, because I've been using it for years to teach the last days apostasy of the church. And if you if you convert that into a rapture passage, you took away one of my key texts, you know, that I've written books about, spoken at conferences about, you know, predicting the last day's apostasy of the church. Well, I guess my response to that is I believe in the last day's apostasy of the church. In fact, um, a few years back, I wrote a series of articles for the uh, pre-trib perspectives um, arguing that the last days in the church will be characterized by doctrinal apostasy. I mean, there's probably no one that believes in that concept more than myself. I mean, you see evidence of it all around you. But here's the deal. I don't think you have to defend that from this passage because there's plenty of other passages that talk about it. So here is a chart that puts together... Uh, Paul's order of his letters. And you'll notice that First and Second Thessalonians is really early. And really early in Paul's ministry, he's not making predictions about the last day's apostasy of the church. Now, he does make those predictions late in his ministry. You'll start seeing Paul moving in this direction in the, the pastoral letters Timothy, but that's much later. Titus, but that that's much later. And then he really gets down to business in 2 Timothy. And he says, you know, the last days is going to be characterized in the church world of people, you know, wanting their ears tickled. And they're going to accumulate for themselves teachers that tell them what their itching ears want to hear rather than what they need to hear. And so those are all very legitimate, very real um, predictions, but you don't need Second Thessalonians 2 verse 3 to make that thought pattern work. In fact, when you try to force Second Thessalonians 2 verse 3 into that thought pattern, because you see the word apostasy there, I mean, basically what people are doing is they're forcing Paul early in his ministry to address a subject that he really doesn't get to until later in his ministry. And when you go through the two Thessalonian letters together, which is why I wanted to do this with you, you see the overriding concern of Paul in the Thessalonian letters. It's not predictions about the last day's apostasy of the church. It's about the second coming of Jesus. Uh, every chapter... In First Thessalonians ends with some sort of reference to the return of Christ. That's what Paul is talking about early on. Now it's true later on he, after that groundwork has been laid, he moves into different topics like predicting what will happen to the church in the last days. But that's not necessarily what he's talking about here. This is the kind of thing that Paul says prior to his death. Things that he's not saying uh, a decade or so earlier. 
he says very late in his ministry, but the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will fall away from the faith. And there's the verbal form, ephistomy, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. And so people want to take that understanding and they want to beam it back into Second Thessalonians 2, verse 3. And I don't think they're really understanding that Paul had a, a lengthy ministry and he deals with different things depending on the time period of, of his ministry. Um, concerning pre-tribulationalists not wanting to accept the physical departure view, there's a basic question they need to answer, and, and most of them don't answer it very well, in my opinion. Because a pre-tribulationalist believes that this apostasy is happening after the church has already been removed. So this is a pre-trib person that does not accept the physical departure understanding. And the question for them is very simple. If every believer on planet Earth has already been removed from the with via the rapture, who's left to apostatize exactly? Because their understanding of apostasy is a doctrinal departure. Well, wait a minute. There's nobody left on planet Earth <laughs> to doctrinally apostatize because all of the believers were taken from the earth through the rapture. So who exactly is apostatizing here? And they really kind of hem and haw over this. They come up with some explanation that these are the unbelievers that are departing. I mean, someone needs to explain to me how an unbeliever can depart from anything. They don't have anything to depart from. I mean, unbelievers are already dead in their trespasses and sins. They're already under the judgment of God. What would an unbeliever doctrinally depart from? And so when you hear a pre-tribulationalist who rejects this view, I'll give you the name of somebody, uh, somebody you all know, Jan Markell, for example, who I happen to enjoy and like on a lot of different things, but she's really dug in her heels against this physical departure view. She's a pre-tribulationalist. And so she has to answer the question, I think, all right, well, you reject the physical departure view. Who's apostatizing here? Because all the believers are gone. And, you know, until she's actually pressed on the subject, no answer will be forthcoming. Because this is a problem with her perspective. And I only bring up her name because of pre-tribs that reject the physical departure view. Um, she's probably the one with the biggest, biggest platform. Um, the third objection to the physical departure view is people say the rapture is passive, meaning God does all the work. We just get sucked up to heaven. When apostasy is, is active, it's something that we do. So what they'll say is every other reference to the rapture is um, something that God does. And then if you want to turn this apostasia into the, ra- into the rapture, that's something that we do rather than what God does, if, if that makes any sense at all. So um, here's Mark Hitchcock, and he's probably one of my favorite prophecy writers. Uh, he wrote a book called The Coming Apostasy, Exposing the Sabotage of Christianity Within. Great book, by the way. But he really wants to use 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3 to prove his point. And so he has a, sort of a little discussion here on why Some take this as physical, but we all know it's doctrinal. And you would expect him to do that because he's writing a book on the apostasy of the church and he wants to use this verse to support his thesis. Um, In my opinion, he doesn't need this verse. (laughs) There's a lot of other verses that talk about it. So um, he gives kind of this um, 
independent kind of discourse on this word apostasia, why he thinks it cannot mean physical departure. He says, since the word apostasia means departure, some have understood the, the apostasy to be the physical departure of the church itself. That is the rapture. Since the rapture will be a physical departure of believers from the earth. If this view were correct, it would definitely place the rapture before the tribulation period, which would be a slam dunk for pre-trib, for the pre-tribulational rapture position. He is a pre-tribber. And he says, if this is the rapture, then it's what I've been trying to teach that it's over in terms of the debate. He's acknowledging that. And he says this, while this is attractive to pre-tribulationalists, there are six main reasons to reject a physical departure as the meaning of apostasia in the context. So he's saying, I'm still pre-trib, but I don't think this verse is a pre-trib verse. So he gives his six reasons. And as I'll show you in a minute, He's getting these reasons from a scholar named Hebert, uh, who wrote some pretty good commentaries on the Thessalonian letters. And he's going to quote Hebert in just a second. My understanding is that the late Dr. John Walverd at one point did hold to a physical departure understanding in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3a, but changed his view because he had so much respect for the commentator named Hebert. So so both uh, Walverd Hitchcock are drawing from Hebert, and they both represent the mentality of pre-tribs, but taking 2 Thessalonians 2.3 as doctrinal rather than physical. He gives six reasons. Number one, in classical Greek, the apostasy was used to denote a military rebellion. Now, that's not entirely true. Um, It is used in classical Greek to denote that, but Liddell and Scott covers the classical Greek period, and there are three entries there for physical departure. So he's basically saying all of classical Greek, uh, it doesn't mean something physical. And I think Liddell and Scott argues otherwise. He gives some more reasons. He says in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this term was used of rebellion against God. Uh, I think he's right there. Number three, in Second Maccabees chapter 2, verse 15, a non-canonical book written in the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament, It was used of apostasy to paganism. I think he's right there. Number four, in Acts 21.21, the only other use of the noun in the New Testament, it refers to apostasy or spiritual departure from Moses. Now, I think he's right there. But... (laughs) There is a world of difference between Acts 21.21 and 2 Thessalonians 2.3. And this is the kind of thing that people do, is they say, well, it's only used twice, this noun, and let's go find the only other reference to the noun and develop the meaning there and read that into 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3. So basically, people that don't like the physical departure understanding will will run in a mad pace over to Acts 21.21. And they're right. Acts 21.21 does use apostasia as doctrinal. That's the verse that says they have been told about you that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake apostasy of Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the custom. So there, apostasia is used as an accusation against Paul who was teaching people to leave doctrinally the law of Moses. So there it clearly means doctrinal departure. So if that's what it means there, that's got to mean what it means in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3. Well, I'm here to tell you that that is not how you 
develop meanings of words. <laughs> you don't run to some other context. Uh, I'll have more to say on this in a second because Amir Serfadi, who I know a lot of people listen to, like Jan Markell, to get updates on Israel. And I think Amir Serfadi does a good job with his Israel updates. Um, but Amir Serfadi has a propensity to kind of try to throw into his updates uh, his personal perspective on different controversies like this. And when Amir Serfadi does that, I don't really think Amir Serfadi is a very good exegete of Scripture. I think he's a very good contemporary, here's what's going on in Israel kind of guy. But when he starts throwing in his exegesis, you know, at that point, I, I can't recommend him because I don't think he does a very good job exegeting the actual text. Um, and it says this, let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the, see the word the there? Did I emphasize that enough? The apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Do you see the word the there in Acts 21, 21? Does anybody see the definite article in front of apostasia in Acts 21, 21? No, the answer is no. Why don't you see it there? Because it's not there. So that in and of itself distinguishes Acts 21.21 from 2 Thessalonians 2.3a. Paul says, the departure. That is not what Acts 21.21 says. My point is, Acts 21.21 is a different context, right, than 2 Thessalonians 2.3. The three rules of real estate are... Location, location, location. The three rules of Bible study are context, context, context. And when people just run over to some remote passage to develop the meaning of a word, they're not respecting the context that the word is found in, number one. And number two, there's a fancy name for an error that they're committing. It's called illegitimate totality transfer. It's mentioned in D.A. Carson's Exegetical Fallacies. It's where you develop the meaning of a word from somewhere else and pretend like the same word has that identical meaning in the context you're dealing with. And a lot of people, when I bring up Amir Serfati, I mean, you wouldn't believe the emails I get. You know, he never said it and, you know, you're a Pharisee, you're dividing the body of Christ, all this kind of stuff. Uh, well, he did say it. He said it over and over again. I've watched him on video saying it, and here he is in, in written form. Granted, this is a, a tweet. I guess they don't call them tweets anymore. It's X, right? Which is, to me, really weird. I liked Twitter better. But anyway, he said the best way to, and this is Amir Safadi's own words, so All you people out there that want to email me, don't get mad at me for something he said, okay? Redirect your email to him. The best way to interpret a word in the Bible is to find that, find where that, where else, to find where else it appears in the Bible. That's totally wrong. You you never figure out what a word means initially by where it means, what it means elsewhere. The the way you figure out what a word means is you study the word and how it's used in this context. And this is kind of the thing that bothers me about Amir Serfati is he has this massive following. And a lot of the things he says are very helpful. But he throws out these statements that are basically um, very sophomoric errors. And this massive following that he has, because everybody wants to know the latest news in Israel, um, they just sort of blindly absorb these exegetical problems that he's demonstrating. And as a pastor, it frustrates me because now um, little old me and a few others are left to sort of correct the record with our sheep based on a mess that he caused. 
and when he spills over his milk, it flows everywhere because his platform is a lot bigger than mine, for example. So he says the word apostasia appears only twice in the New Testament, Acts 21 and 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3. It would be better if he said the noun only appears twice. In both places, it's falling away or departing from the right way and not to be taken away. So he just committed illegitimate totality transfer here. The way to figure out what a word means is you start with what that word means in the immediate context. It's like concentric circles working outward. And then after you've done that, then you could take a look at, well, what, how does the same book use the word? And then once you finish that, you can work your way out further and say, how does the same author who wrote another book use the word? Paul wrote 13 letters. Peter wrote two letters. John wrote three letters, the gospel, revelation. So you're kind of working your way out. What does it mean there? And then only after you've done your due diligence, then are you in a position to go explore other New Testament authors who use the same type of text in the same type of topic. And then after you've done that, can you move out to the final edge of these concentric circles and look at the rest of the New Testament? You see what Amir Sarfati has just done there? He's jumped from the middle circle to the outer edge. And he's and he's acted like, well, this is how you figure out what words mean in the Bible. And your average person says, well, he's got like 10 billion followers online or whatever he has. So he must be right, right? Uh, let, let me just tell you something as clearly as I can tell you. The majority opinion is not always right. In fact, the majority usually gets it wrong. And, and there's pure Bible on this. I mean, Jesus said, broad is the road that leads to destruction, right? Many there are that go that way. Narrow is the road that leads to life. Few are they which follow it. You cannot determine what is true based on what the majority thinks. As I understand it, the majority of people in Nazi Germany elected Adolf Hitler. Um, you look at the spies that came out of Egypt in the book of Numbers, and they looked into the land and they saw giants in the land and the camp of Israel fell into unbelief except for two guys. So it was two against all the other reporters spying out the land. Joshua and Caleb says, let's take it. Well, they were outvoted by a majority opinion. And yet Joshua and Caleb in the minority were completely correct. So don't, don't, whatever the issue is, don't say something is true because the majority of the most popular people out there say it. That is no way uh, to understand truth. Truth is always measured by does it conform to the scriptural standard or not. Are the people promoting the truth, are they accurately using the word of God or not? Yeah, but they quote the Bible so well. And they do it with an accent. Um, the, the truth of the matter is, folks, the devil, you realize this, right? The devil quotes the Bible. You'll see Satan quoting the Bible back to Jesus in the temptations Matthew 4, Luke chapter 4, he took Psalm 91 and he ripped it out of its context and made it sound like Jesus should throw himself from the temple, which, of course, that is not what Psalm 91 says. So just because people cite the Bible means almost nothing. You have to hold everybody, yours truly included, to this accountability, to the standard of Scripture because that's what the Bereans did with Paul, right? And Paul didn't get mad at the Bereans for doing that in Acts 17, verse 11. He submitted himself, didn't write nasty emails and 
column names. You all are divisive. You're Pharisees, blah, blah, blah. He submitted himself, Acts 17, verse 11, to the authority of Scripture, and they said the things that Paul has spoken of conform with God's word, Hebrew Bible, at that point that the Bereans had. And the Bereans are called more noble-minded than other groups who weren't doing that. Um, here's a little chart I put together showing you that Acts 21.21 is a different world than 2 Thessalonians 2.3. It is just a different world. Paul is the author of 2 Thessalonians 2. Luke is the author of Acts 21. 21, different author. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3, Paul is speaking. Acts 21, 21, it's a statement about Paul, but he is not speaking. 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 does not mention the law of Moses, but in Acts 21, 21, that's the whole subject matter. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3 is an epistle. It's a letter, which is a different style of writing than Acts 21.21, which is narrative, which is recounting history. As I mentioned before, you have the definite article in front of 2 Thessalonians 2.3, but you do not have the definite article in front of Acts 21.21. Mark Hitchcock continues, and he says, The rapture is not an act of departure by the saints, the saints are passive and not active. Well, this is sort of interesting because I'll explain this a little bit later. We're not dealing with a verb here. We're dealing with a noun. I mean, usually the discussion of passive, active, that relates to verbs, but here we're dealing with a noun And that notwithstanding, why can't God give us the whole picture of the rapture? Why can't he explain, here's what he's doing on his part when we're taken up? And why can't he also give us another explanation of here is what the experience is going to look like from the human side? So even if you buy into this argument that the rapture is always God's work and apostasy is something active that we do. I mean, I, I would think God would be big enough to give us a description of the whole rapture event from both sides of the equation. Here's God's part over here, the catching up of the saints, and here's what it's going to be like from the human perspective. As we depart. So I'm just not having the big problem with this that others are having. He goes on and he says in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 1, Paul refers to the rapture as our gathering together to him. It seems strange to use this unlikely word, the apostasy, for the same thing in the immediate context. So his point is, well, Paul, a couple of verses earlier, called it, are gathering together for him. I think that's uh, episunagoge, where we get the word synagogue, gathering. And that clearly is the rapture. So, so why would Paul all of a sudden switch to a different word, apostasia, to describe the rapture? That's, that's the point that Hebert Mark Hitchcock, who, as you know, with Mark Hitchcock, most of the time I quote him, it's because I agree so much with what he's saying. I don't agree with him here. And we're, we're big kids now, right? We can all play nicely in the sandbox. Just because you disagree with someone on one thing doesn't mean you have to declare war <laughs> and, and disagree with someone's entire ministry. That is one of the frustrating things in dealing with these issues, because when you bring up the name of a friend, people think you're demolishing the whole ministry, which I am not doing. I am disagreeing with these people on a particular point. 
So his point is, if it means rapture, episunagoge in verse 1, why use this strange word, apostasia, to describe the same event in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3? And the basic answer to that is, hey, you know, Paul's a sophisticated guy. We realize that, right? I mean, Paul was probably one of the most educated people that we have writing the scripture. And when you're a sophisticated guy, you have more than one vocabulary word, right, to describe something. So these are all the different vocab words that Paul uses to describe the rapture. Sometimes he'll call it the parousia. And there's the scripture verses in the right column where you can look those up on your own. Sometimes he'll use episunagoge. Sometimes he'll use the word apocalypsis. Sometimes he'll use the word epiphania. Sometimes he'll use the word riomai, which means rescue. Sometimes he'll use the word harpazo. And hey, how many words is that? One, two, three, four, five, six. If he can use six words, why can't we throw in a seventh one? Can we do that? Why can't he use the word apostasia? So this argument, well, he used a different word over here. Come on. Look, when you describe anything in language, you use synonyms constantly. We don't just mindlessly repeat the same word over and over again to talk about a noun. I mean, my, my car, for example. I mean, that's my car. But sometimes I call it my automobile. Sometimes I call it my vehicle. Sometimes I call it something I'm scared to death in as my daughter now has her learner's permit. Something I gotta buckle my seatbelt. Oh my goodness, what's gonna happen? Actually she's doing a very good job driving. Much, much better than I did when I was her age. Much better than I do currently for that matter. Um, because she actually stops at the stop signs. I kind of do this California ro- rolling stop thing. But anyway, when you talk about a car, you, you use different vocab words. Um, that's just how language functions. Why can't Paul be doing that with the rapture? Why, why are we limiting what Paul can say? I mean, why are we saying things like, Paul, if you want to communicate to me this concept, you can only use that word. The Bible is not written in a way that we would always like it to come to us. It's just written in a certain way, and it's our job not to critique the author, but to figure out what he's trying to say to us. Mark Hitchcock goes on, and he gives you the source of where he's getting these six objections. He says these six points are from D. Edmund Hebert, 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, for these reasons, most expositors have understood the rebellion or apostasy, not as the physical departure of the church at the rapture, but rather a doctrinal, theological, and moral departure from the truth. I agree with him. Most scholars do interpret 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 that way for these six reasons. Now, Here's the common source that they're all drawing from. This guy, D. Edmund Hebert, who, excellent material on the Thessalonian books. But that doesn't mean he's the apostle Hebert, right? He could be wrong on something. And when he's wrong on something, we don't have a book burning party and burn all of his stuff. We just say, well, he's a man. He's fallen like anybody else. He's wrestling with the text. He could be an error on a point, although he's a very good commentator elsewhere. So I recommend Hebert. I recommend Walvert. I recommend Hitchcock. Um, I recommend Jan Markell on not these kinds of issues, but she's got a lot of good things to say. I recommend Amir Serfati, not on these kinds of issues, but other things. And it's the same with Hebert. Hebert says, nowhere else does the scripture speak of the rapture as the departure. A departure denotes an act on the part of the individual or or company departing, 
But the rapture is not an act of departure on the part of the saints. In the rapture, the church is passive, not active. But at the rapture, the church is caught up or snatched away, an event wherein the Lord acts to transport believers from his presence. Everything that takes place with believers at the rapture is initiated by the Lord and done by him. So what he's saying is when it's the rapture, it's God doing the work. Apostasy is something active that we do. So he uses that logic to discount Second Thessalonians 2, 3 as a rapture passage. The first thing he says is nowhere else does the scripture speak of the rapture as the departure. Now I've already answered that. Paul had a sophisticated vocabulary. But then Hebert's second criticism is that The rapture is God doing the work, and apostasy makes it sound like we're doing the work. God is active at the rapture, and apostasy makes it sound like humans are active at the rapture. That's that's what he's getting at. Well, um, what did Jesus say? Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, Man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He said in Matthew 5, verse 18, For I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest stroke, smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Close quote. In other words, the Bible is a book that it gives you details right down to the word level. Every word is there because God put it there. And words are made up of the smallest strokes of the pen. So the Bible is inspired right down to the smallest stroke of a pen, which kind of looks in Hebrew almost like a little apostrophe. Even that little stroke of the pen is there because God put it there. So given the intention of God to communicate right down to the most minute level. Why can't God give us a description of the rapture from his point of view and then from man's point of view? Why is that so off off the table to receive that? I mean, I would expect that in a book like this that describes everything in such detail. I would expect a teaching on something like the rapture to include a lot of material on what God does, his perspective. And I would also think we would have a lot of material in the book about what's happening to us when the rapture happens. Second Thessalonians 2, verse 3, human perspective. First Thessalonians 4, verse 17, divine perspective. So that Hebert's... Um, Objection here, I mean, I'm just not, follow, I'm just not finding it that persuasive. Um, I can probably squeeze in one more here. Number four, and this we've already covered, it's incongruence with verse one. Verse one says, now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. There the word gathering is used. But then verse 3 throws in another strange word, the apostasy. And people say if that referred to the rapture, Paul has to use the exact same word he used earlier. No, he doesn't. He, if, you, if you looked at verse 1 very carefully, he doesn't even use the exact same words here for the rapture. Did you see that? He first of all called the rapture the parousia, that's word A. And then in the same sentence, he uses the word episunagoge for gathering. So why can't Paul in verse 3 use a different word? I mean, if you're going to demand that he use the exact same word, then why does he switch words concerning the rapture in verse 1? Um... This is one of Hebert's major objections. He says, Paul has just referred to the rapture as our gathering unto him. 
Why then should he now use this unlikely term to mean the same meaning? Well, Edmund, do you mind if I call you by your first name? Edmund, he used a different word in verse 1. He said parousia, then he switched words to episynagoge. He, Paul does this all the time. So if he switched words in one verse from parousia to episynagoge, why can't he switch to another word, the apostasia in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 3? Uh, Mark Hitchcock, reiterating Hebert, says in 2 Thessalonians 2, 1, Paul refers to the rapture as our gathering to him. It seems strange to use this unlikely term, the apostasy, for the same thing in the immediate context. He's getting that right out of Hebert. He acknowledges his source. He got it from Hebert. But the answer to Hebert, who is influencing all of these guys, is Paul, in this chart, which we've already gone through, has various terms for the rapture. Why can't he use another? Now, the fifth objection I'm going to postpone for next time, but let me just sort of set the table for it. Um, I've heard Amir Sarfati say this over and over again as he's trying to debunk the physical interpretation, physical departure interpretation of 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 3. He pulls out his King James Bible and he says, if your view of physical departure is right, then what you're saying is the rapture can't happen until the rapture happens. So he's pulling out his King James Bible. He's reading verses 2 and 3 of chapter 2 to his massive audience. And the King James Bible says, Not to soon be shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or letter, as if from us, that the day of Christ has come. Now, I told you earlier that that's not a very good interpretation or translation. It should not be the day of Christ. It should be the day of the Lord. But the King James Version phrases it this way, so it must be true. And you have a whole bunch of people out there that think the King James Version is the version that the Apostle Paul used. It's called the King James Only Mindset. Um, I happen to think that the King James Version is a very good translation. But I do not, this is where I differ from King James only people, I do not think it's inspired. They actually think it's inspired of God. And so a lot of people that are King James only, I mean, am I King James only? I'm kind of King James mostly, I guess. But I'm not King James only, because there are points of it that I just do not think it's faithful to what the original Greek is saying. But the King James Version, unlike most other English translations, calls 2 Thessalonians 2.3 the day of Christ. The day of Christ typically does refer to the rapture. It says not to be soon shaken or troubled either by spirit or word or letter as if from us as though the day of Christ, rapture, had come. Let no one in any way deceive you by any means for that day, what day? The day of Christ. Shall not come except there come a falling away first and the man of sin is revealed. So he's already told them day of Christ that the rapture can't come just want to I want to read this verbatim cuz I don't want to mess this up Paul is reassuring according to this objection that the Thessalon to, to the Thessalonians that they had not already missed the rapture therefore it would be incomprehensible to read the rapture cannot have happened first unless the rapture happens first. So if day of Christ equals the rapture, and if that day refers back to the day of Christ equals the rapture, 
and the apostasia equals the rapture, then what Amir Sarfati does with his King James translation is he's saying the physical departure view can't be right because if that's right, what they're really saying is the rapture can't happen before the rapture happens. And they build this whole case from the day of Christ when in reality the day of Christ should be translated as the day of the Lord. That's how most other English translations translate it. That changes the meaning entirely. Because the day of the Lord refers to the tribulation period. It's a, it's a concept that goes back to the first reference today in Scripture, Genesis 1 verse 5, where there's an evening followed by a morning, which means a tribulation period followed by the kingdom. And if that's the right interpretation, then the apostasia view makes perfect sense. The tribulation can't start until the physical departure of the church comes first. But if you are King James only and you get in front of your massive Twitter audience or Telegram audience or whatever they're using today, Telegraph, I I lose track of them all, and you just read out of the King James Version and then you tell everybody, oh, these people don't know what they're talking about because what they're really saying is the rapture can't happen before the rapture happens, and then you close your Bible and move on and never alert your readers to the fact that most English translations do not translate this as the day of Christ, rather they translate it as the day of the Lord, you're leading people into confusion. See that? And and this is a problem I'm having with Amir Sarfati, is he's doing this kind of stuff all the time. He's making these um, interpretive exegetical errors in the context of an Israel update, which everybody enjoys. And so they're absorbing this theology, thinking that the King James Version on this passage has it absolutely right when in actuality, as I'll show you next week, I think the King James Version is flat out wrong here. Do we throw out the King James Version? No, great translation in other areas, but not here. That should not be translated the day of Christ. It should be translated the day of the Lord. And if you understand it as the day of the Lord, rather than the day of Christ, There is no internal contradiction between these verses, which is a part of the discussion Amir Sarfati doesn't tell his readers about. Let me pray. Father, we're grateful for your word and your truth. Help us to handle it correctly and accurately um, in these last days. Help us to be brilliant. Help us to take every thought captive to Christ. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen.